All right. Uh, this morning, one of the big themes that we're thinking about is about withholding obedience. It's something that's going to come up a bit in this passage, withholding obedience. So what, what, do, what do I mean by that? Well, maybe you kids uh, could, could think of a time when you have withheld obedience from your parents, where you, your parents have asked you to do something, and you go, oh, I'm not going to do that. And you, or maybe you, you will get to it, but you're not in a hurry to obey. Perhaps, um, perhaps then you want to negotiate. You know, I'll do that for you, mum or dad, if you do X, Y, and Z, or if I'm allowed to do this. That's, that's called withholding obedience. But for us as adults, we do similar things, right? Um, it might be easy to point at and, and see it play out in, the, in our homes in our, um, in our, as kids, but we can fall into the same trap of doing the same thing, withholding obedience, knowing that this is the thing that God has called us to do, knowing that this is the right thing to do, but holding back and going, maybe later, withholding and going, oh, I'm not ready yet, I'm not ready to obey God yet. It's not a good place to be. Thankfully, God can overcome even our withholding, but it's something that we need to think about this morning, and we will see it play out in uh, Barak. Okay. The first point this morning is the Lord gives over. The Lord gives over. If you are following along, kids, with the outline, this is what you, where you can start to write things in. You see, the judges, as, as many of us know, as we've been talking about the last few times we talked about the judges, there's a pattern, there's a cycle that comes around time and time again throughout this book. There's a pattern of uh, disobedience. Then there's oppression from, that God lets the people or sends the people into oppression. Then the people call out, God, please save us from this. And then God acts. He redeems his people. He brings them back. But then, before long, it's back into the cycle again. Now, where are we in the history of Israel? This is after the people have come up out of Egypt. They've had their wilderness wandering years. So they were freed from slavery in Egypt by God. They were given, um, uh, they were freed from their wilderness wandering. And then they have gone up into the land and started settling in the land, but they didn't finish the job, and they've started to fall prey to all the nations that lived around them and amongst them. They have served their gods, they have intermarried, they have not done what God called them to do. And so this is after Joshua, in this period, before kings start showing up in Israel, before King David and that kind of thing. So that's where we are in the history. But the thing is, in this cycle of judges, every time there's a cycle, things are progressively worse. They progressively get worse. You, if you could think of this like, a, if we're thinking about like a cycle of things going round and round, it's a depressing cycle. It's going down. It's, it's going down in deeper deeper into darkness. By the time we get to Samson and then uh, the stuff that follows after Samson, things are just a mess. But we will get there in time. Othniel is the kind of the the picture of what the best judge pattern looks like. He's the guy, he's the poster child. This is what a judge should be like. He's, he's, a, he's a great bloke. He comes from a noble line of um, a, fam, a good family of guys who've been faithful to God. He goes out, he does the job, he rules, 
um, everything is great. And then each successive judge after that, things aren't as good as we would hope them to be. Now, I said, um, I, uh, we kind of skipped Shamgar. So if I could just take one second to say, there's one verse in between Ehud and Shamgar, uh, and, uh, and Deborah and Barak. There's this one verse about a guy named Shamgar. And we don't know much about him. He doesn't get the treatment that the other judges get about the whole cycle of things. He gets that verse, and then there's a verse in the Song of Deborah and Barak about Shamgar as well. So we'll mention him again next week. But suffice to say that Shamgar used a cattle prod to kill 600 Philistines. That's all we get. And now we're into Judges 4. There is a bit of a question about what his name means. And some people have thought, said because of the meaning of Shamgar's name, that he might not have been an Israelite. And so this raises more questions about why aren't the Israelites standing up to God's enemies and why do they have to rely on outside powers? But that's just a kind of a, a possibly maybe. But coming into Judges 4, let's have a look uh, at verse 1 where we get the next cycle. The people of Israel did again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Now, Ehud, the left-handed guy from the tribe of Benjamin, the son of the right hand, the left-handed guy from the son of the right hand tribe, um, he's had this great influence, but unfortunately, as his influence faded, as he died, so did the faithfulness of the people of Israel. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and this is a, is a comprehensive statement, they did what was evil inside the Lord, but as we saw from the prologue of Judges, it, that's spelled out. What does the, their evil look like? They would, they would start worshipping the other gods of the nations around them, from Canaan, and in particular, the Baals and the Ashtoreth. They would, uh, they would get mixed in with this other worship, and that included other stuff as well. That, there was kind of implications of this, including intermarriage. Um, yeah. So they were serving other gods. They would not remain faithful to the one true God. Remember, God had rescued them out of Egypt. He was their God. He had chosen the people of Israel. He had entered into a covenant with them, and it was an exclusive covenant, much like a marriage. There's, there's, there's a exclusivity in that relationship, and they were supposed to serve God, Lord God, only. But Israel was perpetually tempted to worship other gods, like the nations around them. And so God gives them consequences under the terms of their covenant that they had entered into under God, to, entered into with God. If you don't remain faithful, there'll be consequences. And that's what God gives them. And it's almost like, a, a, it's almost like God gives them what they ask for. They say, look, we're not going to stick with you, God. We're going to try other things. And God says, okay, try something else other than me and see how you like it. But God doesn't leave them there. Even though the people fail on their promises, they fail in their faithfulness, God will turn around and say, I will remain faithful even if you are unfaithful. I will rescue and redeem you even if you have walked away from me. And so in this case, God says, here, you can try life without me under the king Hazor, king of Hazor. Now, if you have read Joshua, you would remember that Joshua and the people of Israel had actually already attacked and defeated this city a couple hundred years earlier. They had destroyed it. 
it was absolutely a, uh, you know, wiped out, basically. It shouldn't be a powerful city in the, in the nation. What should be there is faithful Israelites claiming their inheritance under God and serving Him. But instead, these guys have been allowed to grow up to power once again, and they are now the bane of the Israelites' existence. So, there's a king in Hazor, and he is uh, oppressing the people. Their failure has now become their slavery. And I think that that reminds me of what sin is like, right? Sin becomes our slavery. It's something that enslaves. We let it go today. It's not a big deal. Don't need to worry about it. It's just a little, it's just a little thing. But we leave it to fester and metastasize and we feed it. And then we become captive to sin because we didn't excise it, when we didn't cut it out when we had the chance. How many of our, the, the kind of sins that we're addicted to, the, our, our regular sins that we are most tempted by, how many of them started out as just a try, just a little bit? It's not a big deal. I'll deal with it some other time. But then these sins become addictions that rule our life. They become our oppressor. They become slavery. I, I, just re, re, I just recently finished listening to The Silmarillion, which is one of J.R. Tolkien's uh, books in the Lord of the Rings uh, universe. And there's a character in this book uh, called Ungoliant. And so the bad guy, Melkor, who's a Satan-like figure... It kind of corrupts and directs Ungoliant. And she's like a ravenous spider-like monster. And the bad guy, Melkor, sets her loose for his own purposes. Initially, she is serving him. This, this monstrous figure is serving him. And so for a while, they have this kind of mutually agreeable relationship. She's this ravenous monster who wants to devour everything... And so he sends her against his enemies. She goes and devours his enemies. So it's good for him, and she gets to feed her insatiable hunger. But the problem is, eventually she runs out of things to devour, and so she turns against her master and tries to devour him. And this is what sin is like. Initially, we think, well, this sin is my... uh, This is something I've got control over. This is something that I'm dealing with. Um, It's not a big deal. Um, It works for me, it feels good, I like it. But then, eventually, it enslaves us, it tries to attack us and bring us down. It tries to consume us. We should have mastery over sin, but if we give way to sin, it will have mastery over us. And sometimes God may leave us under the slavery of our sin for a time that we might learn not to to turn to our sin and instead turn to Him and look to Him and to walk in obedience. It can be a judgment from God that we be handed over to our sin. And that's just a general principle in the world. That's why we can tell that we as Australia are a nation under God's judgment, as it talks about in Romans 1, because we, when we pursue our sin and refuse to heed God's Word, God gives us up to our sin. He lets us pursue our lusts. He doesn't restrain us anymore. And now for the Christian, God's not content to leave us pursuing our sin. And so even if we have a time of wandering away from the Lord, like the, uh, the, the uh, prodigal son, we go away, eventually God will bring us to our senses 
and we'll realize our plight and we can turn to God and we can come and find rescue and restoration from our own stupidity and stubbornness. And that's what's happened here in Judges. God gave them over to their wishes, but after a time, the people cried to the Lord to rescue them. Now, moving on in verse 3, we see that because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and he cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years and they cried to the Lord for help. They looked to God for help, but the problem was really big, really big. This was no ordinary oppressor. This was a guy who had a technologically advanced army. This would be like us saying, we're being oppressed by a nation that has a fleet of F-35 fighter jets, right? This is the latest and greatest military technology. It can, um, used in the right way, it will absolutely destroy the opposition who don't have the same level of technology. And so this force, these chariots of iron, was the latest and greatest invention for military dominance, and it was used to cruelly oppress God's people. And it looked like an unassailable thing. They didn't have chariots. They didn't have any way of kind of standing up to this force of chariots. We also notice at this time, that the length of time that these people remain under, the people of Israel remain under oppression, is getting longer. We're up to 20 years now, a step up in time. For 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Why longer? I don't know. Maybe God thought, sorry, I shouldn't say that. Maybe God was intending for them to spend longer under uh, this oppression to make them kind of jog them to their senses. This keeps happening and it keeps getting longer. Maybe we should choose a different path. Coming to the next uh, point, we see the Lord has said, the Lord has said, and I'm going to move through this story. Uh, sometimes it'll be going pretty quick. And I'll rehash the story a bit, give you some commentary, and make some applications as they come up. We have this unfolding story of what God does in response to the people calling out to him. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Labidoth, was judging Israel at, the, at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. I'm swapping a little bit between the ESV and the NIV as I feel they uh, do a better job of uh, representing the text. So here we've got, I've got the ESV version. So Israel is, uh, sorry, Deborah is judging Israel. She's leading, ruling in Israel. Not in the sense of like a a governor, but in the sense of like people would come to her to hear godly advice. They'd come to her to bring their cases to her probably so that she could divide, decide them. Um, Yeah. But Deborah was a woman, and you might say, of course, naturally, Deborah's a girl's name, but it's pressed home here, right? Deborah, a girl's name, was a prophetess, so a female prophet, the wife of Lapidoth. Now, three ways of pressing home the fact that Deborah was a woman. It's a bit strange, it's a bit unexpected in the scope of the Bible. There's no one else like her so far in Judges, and there won't be anything more. And in fact, across the whole Scriptures, we don't have anyone else like Deborah. So why is she judging Israel? Well, park that question for a moment, we're going to come back and answer that. But Deborah, she's a prophetess, she's a faithful woman speaking the truth of God in the midst of a nation that is going astray. She is serving God and serving God's people. 
She's well known, well enough known that eventually there's a tree named after her because that's the area where she would sit and people knew that was the place to go, to go and find Deborah if you needed to go and talk to her about something. Now, Hazor, we're going to look at a map a little bit later, but Hazor is up in the north of Israel, up more towards the region where Jesus was born, near the Sea of Galilee. And Deborah is more down south, near Bethel. And she calls Barak to come and see her. She summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand? It's, it's one sentence, a big, it's a big long question. So, so Deborah, as the prophet, as a mouthpiece for God, prophetess, speaks to Barak about a mission that God has for Barak. What's the mission? Get a bunch of guys together from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun, about 10,000 blokes. God's going to draw out Sisera, the commander of the, the king of Hazor's army, chariots and all, and now go and meet him at a specific battleground and fight and win with God's help. That's the mission. Straightforward enough, right? But as we said before, this is a pretty big deal. It's like taking out your sop with camels and your, um, and your spitfires to take on F-35s. You know, you're, you're going out with uh, weak military technology to take on superior technology. And you're worried that you're just going to get mowed down. This is madness, at least according to human reasoning. And so how does Barak respond? He says, if you go with me, I will go. But if you do not go... With me, I won't go. So Barak sets up conditions upon obedience to God. And now we definitely know something's not right. Something's very wrong about the state of affairs in Israel if the best commander for the job is hesitant about obeying God. And now we come back to answer that question, why is Deborah judging Israel? We see here the Lord's indictment, the Lord's indictment. Uh, an indictment is a, is a formal or like a, a, yeah, usually a formal kind of accusation of wrongdoing, if we're talking about it in a legal sense. Um, you present your formal accusation of, of wrongdoing and then you go to trial to test out whether those accusations are correct. This is obviously not a, a, a court case, this is a narrative story, but there is a sense here which the Lord brings an indictment against the people of Israel, an accusation of wrongdoing. And as we come to look at this, we've got to come to grips with the fact that we live in a society that is naturally in opposition to God. And you and I have been affected by it, often in ways that we don't realise until later on. It's trained us to think in certain ways. And the perpetual call of the Christian is to be, not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And as we broach this topic around the gender of, of Deborah and her leadership of God's people, we need to put off the training that the world gives us and listen to God's word with great care. At a cursory reading, one might be tempted to think that this is a feminist daydream. Look, 
Deborah can do all the same things that blokes can do, and she does it well. And because she did that, that justifies other women taking up positions of civil and spiritual authority over God's people in any case. But not so fast. When we take off the worldly lenses and let the scriptures speak for themselves, God speak for himself, we get a different picture. Let's trace it out. First, we've already noted the fact that it's an oddity of Deborah judging Israel. While there are other prophetesses in, in God's, among God's people across the Old Testament, nowhere else do we have in Judges or the whole Bible do we have a figure like uh, Deborah. She is an exception. That's the first thing. Secondly, when Deborah speaks to Barak, she, pro- she poses the command as a question. And, and that's why I brought out the ESV there because um, some translations kind of put it as a question, some translations put it as a direct command but it's kind of has this air of a question like hasn't God told you to do this hasn't God told commanded you to go up and take on the army now on its own this kind of question as this command that leads to a question is not out of the ordinary there are other places where this happens as well but it's kind of implying that Barak hasn't been doing what he's been asked to do maybe but that on its own, it's not conclusive. But then we add this, the third thing, and more obviously, when Barak is told point blank that God wants him to go on this mission, Barak withholds his obedience and sets prerequisites. He's essentially saying, I won't obey God unless you do something for me. You, you imagine that, saying to somebody you know, I'm not going to obey God unless you do something for me. Imagine saying to somebody, I will sin unless you do what I want. It's trying to guilt somebody into doing something for you. And ladies, if you come across a bloke who treats you like this, you should have alarm bells going off. Now, we could try and put a positive spin on this. Look, Barak knows that Deborah's a prophetess. She speaks for God. He just wants her to be there so that he can get God's advice. He can, he can get godly advice. He can get wisdom. He can get prophecy along the way, on the campaign. He needs Deborah as God's mouthpiece. And yes, that is true. That would be a good spin on it. But even if there is this motive mixed in, most commentators have agreed that this is a sign of Barak's cowardice. He's trying to shirk his duty. And it's a part of the reason that we can be so sure of this, that he is shirking his duty, is the way that Deborah responds. And this is the fourth element of this picture that we're tracing out. She says, certainly I will go with you, but because of the course you are taking, the honour will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. And the NIV brings this out, because of the course you are choosing, because of the course you are taking, because of the way you are acting, the battle glory won't go to you, it will go to a woman. And this is meant to be a shameful thing for Barak. This mighty leader warrior is going to have his reputation dinted and his victory shadowed by a valiant housewife. Not not that there's anything wrong with uh, housewives getting glory, that kind of thing. But the issue here is Barak is the the warrior 
and the warrior is not going to get glory for being a warrior. And I hope you can see how this picture is unfolding here. Let's put all the pieces together. Deborah is an exception as a judge. Barak may not have obeyed God's command the first time. He withholds his obedience by trying to put it back on Deborah. And then the consequences of all this is that his glory will be taken by a woman. You see, the picture that's unfolding is that the reason that Deborah is a judge is because the blokes are useless. Her judgeship is an indictment against Israel, against the people. If Barak is the cream of the crop, then the whole country is in a woeful state. The men are shirking their responsibility and their duty to step up and lead and protect. And so God installs Deborah and uses Jael to demonstrate the failure of the men. Now, Deborah and Jael are great women. They are the ones who demonstrate faithfulness and courage and a great example to all people, men and women alike. However, the reason that they end up in these jobs, in this spotlight, is because the men are not doing their job. And in case you think I'm overextending it, there is another verse that in, in, this, in the Old Testament that points us to this kind of picture, that this is the problem. And it's a verse that will offend your modern sensibilities. It's from Isaiah, in a passage that bemoans the terrible state of Israel in later years. Seems not much is going to change in Israel. They're bemoaning how bad things are. And it says, youths oppress my people, or infants oppress my people in some translations. Women rule over them. My people, your guides lead you astray. They turn you from the path. You see here, the, the leadership of women is used as a poetic device to describe the poor state of leadership among the people. And, and this is not because there's a problem with women. This is an indictment against the men who are failing to be faithful. Now, men and women are different, and God made us that way. We are different in our physiology. We're different in the way our brains work. And we have, on average, different temperaments. And you see, God made us for the mission that he has for us in two genders, and he made us to inhabit this good design. Even going back to the first man, Adam, God made him, gave him a mission, and then he made Eve to make up what he was lacking to be able to accomplish that mission. She became the two I see, the second in command, and they complemented each other so that Adam could pursue his mission. And this isn't a comment on Eve's value. She's equal in human dignity with Adam, but she's not called to be what Adam is called to be. Now, so Adam might have had kind of preeminence in the leadership, but that means he also had preeminence in responsibility. So that later, when Eve broke the command of God, Adam is the one called to account for it. It's called Adam's sin because of his failure to step up for those under his leadership. Now, you might think I might be spending a great deal of time here. Many of you go, yes, of course, we know, but, um, but we can't take that for granted. Not all of us are on the same page with these things. And gender seems to be a particularly hard topic for many people outside the church, but even inside the church, sometimes you have difficulty working through this. 
And now there's going to be a few areas where we have a bit of a back and forth in trying to understand the application, the practicality of the kind of the picture that God lays out for us of gender in the scriptures. How, what is the practical things on the ground? There's going to be some um, things where we're, where we're not quite sure how to do it. Some people think it should be done this way. Some people think it should be done this way. But the principles, the big picture principles of the scripture are quite clear. And they come through um, in this passage in Judges. But because the big picture is clear in the scriptures, it means that we as a church are unapologetically complementarian. So that we believe men and women complement each other. We believe men and women are equal in dignity, but complementary in nature and function. And so we believe in a complementarianism. You've got to use, invent these words because of all the other uh, bad ideas that others invent. We've got to invent words to explain what we mean that the Bible says. So we don't believe in a complementarianism that is just dressed up egalitarianism. We just kind of put a, a bit of a, a sheen on it that put, tack a few Bible verses to make it different. No, we want to be faithful to the Scriptures. We want to truly obey God as women and God as men. And that means in some areas we're called to different things. It also means that each gender, each sex, has different sins that we need to guard against. And so kind of coming back around to Deborah, the sin of the men in Israel is that they were not stepping up to lead and defend. And this is exemplified in Barak, who shirks his duty and withholds his obedience. Now, we covered a lot of ground there. We want to have more talk about that? That's fine. We can have a, a chat some other time or send in your questions. So what's happened in Israel in Deborah's day is that things are wrong. It's another sign of the spiraling darkness in Israel. Deborah is great. Deborah is wonderful. Jael is also good. So Deborah and Jael get all the glory. Remember, women are already the glory of man. But you're, you're the glorious half of humanity. But in this story, the women also take the glory that could have gone to the men if only they had stepped up. Next we see that the Lord has given victory. The Lord has given victory. Now, Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zanaim, Zananim, near Kadesh. Remember this for later. There's a group of Kenites that are camping in the area. The Kenites uh, had been associated with Israel, but they weren't really Israel, kind of related through Moses, and they were hanging around. So when they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harasheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. So here come the battle tanks, the heavy artillery, and they head to this area called the River Kishon. And it, when we think river, you might be thinking of you know, the Latrobe River or the uh, McAllister that we have passing through town, uh, down south of town. We have, that's, that's right, you should take it and give it to somebody else. <laughs> so the River Kishon is more like a floodway. You know, it gets wet in the, in the rainy season and then it dries up again. It's, it's like a wadi. Uh, so sometimes it's wet, sometimes it's dry. And so when it's dry... It's, it's a nice wide open area for running around chariots, chariots in. 
And we'll talk more about the problem with that in the next chapter. So, then Deborah says to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. So Barak is now called into action, and this time he obeys without any prerequisites. The Lord gives Sisera into his hand, and the Lord goes out before him. It's the Lord doing the work. Sisera is there obeying, but it's the Lord doing the work. The Lord has given you into his hand. The Lord goes out before you. There's no need to fear or doubt because God is at work. And so at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harosheth or Goyim. And all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. So the Lord routed the army. This new military technology was no match for God. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the, the, the battle specifics next week. But just to put you in the picture of where we're talking about, we've got Mount Tabor in the middle here. There's the Sea of Galilee. Jesus comes from this area uh, many hundreds of years later. And Jerusalem's off the bottom of the page down here. And so we've got, their, they come with their chariots down to Mount Tabor in this area here. And then up here, there's a guess is where the camp is for the, um, the Kenites camping up a little bit away from the Mount of Tabor. All right. As we reflect on this, I ask the question, what promises of God are you doubting? The Lord is the one who gives the victory. The Lord gives and He's promised to give. He promised here and He delivered. The Lord promised to send his son and he delivered. The Lord promised that he would rise from again from the dead and he delivered. All of God's promises come true. And so the question then for you is, what promises are you doubting? Are you like Barak going, uh, I don't know about that, maybe. Are, are you saying, look, I want to obey God, but I'm not sure that the time is right. God has guaranteed his victory. God has said what he's going to do. So just go and do it. Obey the Lord and the Lord will go out before us. If you remember the passage from Revelation, the white rider on the horse, Jesus turns up with a double-edged sword, the word of God in his mouth, and he comes with his army dressed in white robes. And then the next verse is, and he's defeated his enemies. There's, Jesus just does it, but his people come with him to accomplish his victory. God accomplishes the victory. God does the work. God gives the victory. But God's people go with him and obey him in taking this victory. The victory is given. Let's take it up. And in a similar vein, we have the last, the last point, which is the Lord delivers. And this is the crux of the story. They're like the, the, the high point of the, the, sorry, the climax of the narrative. We've got Sisera legging it because obviously his chariot's been disabled somehow. Like, obviously, if you can get out with your chariot, that's the best place to be. But he had to ditch his chariot and take off. <clears throat> and he flees to, on foot, to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heba the Kenite. That's where the, we had those Kenites before. And because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heba the Kenite, Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. She entered... So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. So now we see why the Kenites were mentioned, because they were in the vicinity 
and it is relevant to the story. So Sisera is coming past. Jael says, quick, come and hide in here. And he's thirsty and he asks for water. And Jael says, I'll go one better. I'll give you milk. This is looking good for Sisera. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground. And somewhat unnecessarily, we're told, and he died. Then <laughs> don't think this is like a, a, you know, a little tent peg, you know, that you're thinking about from your little three-man dome, like tent peg. We're probably talking like tent peg for holding up the big tents they would use as their house as they're a nomadic people, but they might set up their tents for months on end. So we're talking big tent pegs. And uh, it's said that often the women would be the ones who would set up these tents, and so it was not surprising to find that JL had a tent peg and a big hammer on hand. And so she uses it to defeat Sisera. This raises the question about wartime ethics. And we get the picture in the scriptures that there is, we, we know that we're not to lie, we're not to bear false witness against our neighbour, but in wartime, it is okay to deceive others, the enemies of God, in order um, for God to win. And you might think, well, really? Well, there's the Hebrew midwives who are blessed by God because of what they did in deceiving Pharaoh and not throwing the babies into the river. We also get Rahab, who is blessed because of the way that she deceived the civil authorities and told them that the Israelite spies had left town. And there are other uh, examples of this. Even just the way that battles are fought, you know, sometimes they would, they would go to a battle and they would make it look like they had a smaller force, they would deceive the enemy into thinking that it was safe to come out and attack them, and then the larger force would appear or kind of go behind them and attack the city. So wartime ethics gives allowance for some deception. Whether or not Sisera exactly did the right thing here, I'm not making any assessment on that, but she is using something of deception in order to win against God's enemies. But it's confusing as well because she's not really an Israelite, she's a Kenite. And it seems like they've got an agreement with the, with the, the people, who, um, with uh, Sisera and his army, so she's kind of backstabbing. But... Next chapter, she's going to be held up as a blessed woman. Something to think about. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. So even though Barak went out to war, um, Deborah was giving the, the advice, giving the instructions, even though uh, Jael is the one who takes up the tent peg and drives it through Sisera's head, even though these things are all happening in the world, physical things happening, people making choices and doing their thing, who's the one who makes it all come together? It is God. God is the one who gives them the victory. God is the one who subdued their enemies. He works providentially for his people. The Israelites then were strengthened to overcome the enemy. And it reminds me that we are strengthened to overcome our enemies to put to death what is earthly in you, for example. God delivers us, God delivers his people, and he strengthens his people. And one of the ways we are strengthened is to wage war against the sin which wages war against us. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness. 
which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. I don't think this is meant to be just like a be-all and end-all. This is just a little snapshot, a little taste to say, put to death what is sinful in you, like these things. God has strengthened us by sending His Holy Spirit into us and enabling us to wage war against the sin within us. So let's, let's all um, bring it to a close. The Lord gives us over to our sin if we pursue it. Sometimes He'll let us taste what we're asking for, for a time. <clears throat> but when the Lord calls us to, to act, to obey, we should not withhold our obedience. It's the Lord's indictment against us. Uh, sorry, the, the Lord brings His indictment against Israel for their failure to act. And I wonder if, if the Lord would be bringing an indictment against you for your failure to act. But the Lord gives the victory. The Lord gives the victory. What victory is that? It's not just some nebulous victory. This is a victory that comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the one who sent Jesus into the world to defeat Satan, sin and death, all of our enemies, like the dragon that we read about earlier. God brings the victory. And because He has defeated Satan, sin and death, you don't need to be subject to them anymore. You can be freed and you can be strengthened to go and put to death what is earthly in you. Jesus is a better deliverer than Barak. Jesus doesn't shirk his duty. Jesus doesn't pull away. Jesus doesn't set um, um, prerequisites on obeying God. He came and did what God said every bit of the way. He stepped up every bit of the way. He had his active obedience all the way through in serving God, the Father, and by doing so, he won our deliverance from Satan, sin, and death. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blessing to us in giving us deliverance. Please, Lord, keep us from withholding our obedience and from shirking our duty. Help us, Lord, to step up and faithfully walk and uh, obey you. Please, Lord, strengthen us to defeat, um, to, to defeat the enemies that assail us. And please, Lord, help us always to follow um, you and to be, remain faithful to you as our deliverer, who, one who has given us the victory in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.